Okay, Ma'adim L'Simcha, Chag Sameach and Guten Moed, etc. I was at an exotic place for the first days called Home, uh, which actually was a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, what we're talking today, uh, we're talking about today is a uh, simple question: uh, Why is there a world? Uh, now uh, the question actually, it's interesting. If you look in the Rambam, the Rambam in More Hanavuchim, in Guide for the Perplexed, he says uh, he says the following. He says many complete and good people have been very confused in trying to find a purpose for the existence of the world. Tachlit Zuhamet Siyut, the reason for this reality. Mahu, what is the what is the ultimate goal, purpose of this reality? And Maimonides goes on to say, but I will tell you, that this question has to be annulled. This question is an illegitimate question, Maimonides says. He says, because first of all, how could you possibly imagine that you could know why God, creator of space-time reality, everything, God who is reality itself, right? how could you possibly imagine that you could know why he does something? I mean, I have close friends I've known for 20, 30 years. They sometimes do things, I have no clue why they did that. I know these people well, right? In some cases I'm more intelligent than them. In some cases I know a lot more than and, and I don't know why they did something. How could I possibly have the audacity the arrogance, Maimonides says, to expect that my simple, finite mind can encompass a reason, a motivation for the infinite creator. He says this thing is ridiculous. It's impossible. In addition, he says, there is one of the principles, uh, the, uh, it's the third principle of faith, is what we call kadmut. Uh, sorry, the fourth principle. Maimonides says kadmut means the eternity of God. Which is to believe that this unit, this unity, God, Kadmon Behechlet, is absolutely prior to everything possible. Absolutely prior to anything. He says anything outside of God exists only because God chose it to exist. And it's interesting, Maimonides explains, when he talks about this fourth principle of faith, that part of that principle is that there can be nothing or no reason or, or prompt or compulsion for God to do anything. Anything God does is not because of something prior. If you say He did this because, then the because is prior to God's will. And He says such a thing logically cannot exist. He says so both because of the frailty of our own intellect, uh, no offence to anyone, but compared to God, right? Uh, both because of the frailty of our own intellect, number one, and because of the fact that it's not possible, it's not logical to say that anything preceded any cause or anything like that. So therefore he says it cannot be that we can talk about a reason for creation. So that's it for the class. Thank you very much for coming and we'll see you later. But, however... Um, this is a little problematic. When you think about it, what Maimonides says is problematic. It's problematic for a, few, for a few reasons. First of all, the Torah itself seems to say that there are reasons. There's a reason for the world. God commanded us to do all these statues, to fear the Lord our God, to give good to us. Verse in Dvarim says, God commanded us to do this all these statutes, in order to give good to us for all days. Posuk in Tehillim, Ani amarti olam chesed yibaneh, for I said the world was created or built upon chesed, upon kindness. We know that all throughout Jewish philosophers have all, all discussed the idea that the world has a purpose. In fact, this probably is one of our main arguments with many, many uh, uh, atheists, agnostics, uh, many people in the scientific world, not necessarily all scientists, but certainly many who would say that looking for purpose in the world is futile. 
futile. Stephen Jay Gould, very famous um, uh, scientist. He was uh, uh, Jewish um, and uh, from Brooklyn. Uh, he wrote a tremendous amount of books. Very popular science writer. He taught, uh, I believe, he taught evolution at Harvard. And uh, in in many many of his books, he makes the point. I mean, he he was clearly an atheist. He's not an atheist anymore. He died about two years ago. So um, so Stephen Jay Gould, however, uh, points out that uh, looking for purpose is ridiculous if you look at the world as a series of random events. I mean, randomness and purpose are two total opposites. He says, you can't talk about, oh, this evolved because of that. He says, that's ridiculous. It just happened that way, totally random, totally arbitrary. He says, it's ludicrous to look for purpose, ludicrous to look for any goal in anything in the world. And from his perspective, he's right. From the perspective that everything is an accident, everything is random, everything is arbitrary, everything is a, or as the Greeks looked at, an infinite series of cause and effect and cause and effect going infinitely back, then it's, you cannot look for purpose. But I always thought, I'm sure most of you always thought, that the Torah comes along and says, Bereshis bora Elohim, Hashem created the world, Hashem, who is a being who does things with chokhmah, with logic, with wisdom, etc., Surely now it is possible for us to look for a purpose in the world. And here the Rambam comes along and says, forget about it. And indeed, Yoshebeth Soloveitchik in Halachic Man tells a story um, of his, his grandfather, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, his grandfather, right? Rav Chaim Soloveitchik walking by in a shul and seeing a copy of a Hasidic book open. And it happened to be open to a page that was talking about why there is a world. And he glances at it quickly, he closes the book, and Rav Chaim Soloveitchik said, he says, uh, I mean he said it in Yiddish, but he says something like, this is a silly discussion, he says, Kach Ratza HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this is what Hashem wanted. In other words, he was, in classic Soloveitchik fashion, basically quoting the Rambam, which is, this is what Hashem wanted, that's as much as we can say. So, how do we resolve these two? On the one hand, the Rambam telling us that practically and logically we can't really know what the purpose of the world is. On the other hand, I mean, all throughout Jewish philosophy, the Ramchal, and in a couple of places, Maimonides himself, apparently in the Chumash and in Tanakh, we have Sukkim that seem to indicate this as well. And our main, one of our main arguments with the Greeks, one of our main arguments with the atheists, would be the idea that the world has a purpose. So how do we resolve this? So the Barbanel, in Rosh Amana, in his book on the Rambam's 13 Principles of Faith, the Barbanel resolves this. And he says the following. This is not the moshal he uses. This moshal, this analogy is used by Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg. But he says the following. Let's say you see a factory. And you look around in the factory and you find that this factory produces plastic containers. So you would be correct in saying the purpose of this factory is the production of plastic containers. This is perfectly legitimate. He said, would you now be able to say that the owner of this factory built the factory because he wants plastic containers? Not necessarily, right? It, not necessarily. The Abarbanel says the owner of the factory may have built the factory, A, most likely he wants money. He built a factory, he produced plastic containers to sell them. It's not like he wants, he's got this fetish to have plastic containers. More plastic, more plastic, that type of thing, right? I mean, maybe there are people like that, you know, like, right? Donald Trump with real estate would be an example. But you see, uh, what exactly is the, you know, he's not necessarily want plastic, he wants money. Or maybe he built the factory because he's a philanthropist. He would like to provide jobs for the people in this area, right? And he figures that the good way to do that is, and the money he's going to plough back into the city. He's an amazing guy, right? Such a person doesn't exist really. But I mean, let's say, right? Or maybe his purpose is he's got too many profits and he needs to invest them to, uh, to because he's got, otherwise his tax bracket will be enormous. So he reinvests it and he builds factory. I don't know. There could be a million reasons... Or maybe he wants to teach his son how to run a business. And he's building the factory and installs his son as manager and says, good, I want you to learn how to run a business. I don't know. There could be any number of reasons. From the factory we can know, however, what we can do is look at the factory and say, aha, the factory produces plastic containers and we'd be 100% correct in that. What's behind that, we would not know. So the Arbarbanel says the following. He says, we can look at the world, the Torah, 
the prophets, the writings, we can look at the works of Chazal, we can look at our world, and we can determine what the plastic containers are that it's producing. We could say, Olam, Chesed, Yibaneh, the world is there to produce love, kindness, giving. Right? We can look at the world and say the world is there for his karvus, closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And all that would be 100% correct. However, to go beyond that, behind that, before creation, we don't know. That is what the Medrash says about why the, it's a very famous Medrash, why the Torah starts with the letter base. The letter base is shaped like that. It's almost, it's open on one side, but it's closed off on three sides. As the Medrash says, because you can investigate from here on. That's open, yes. But above and behind, in other words, the areas before creation, before space-time, before Hashem said, Bereshis Bora, in the beginning, before Hashem created all this, you don't have a clue, we cannot know. And indeed, that's how the Abarbanel looks at it. This is also... And he says, so he says, that's how we understand it. So yes, we can indeed find purpose in the world. We can look into the factory. We can see what plastic containers are being produced, so on and so forth. And the Ramchal says a similar idea. The Ramchal says, he says, Who is Barach Levado? God himself alone. Yodea Shoresh Kol Ha'inyanim Shiratzalasod. He alone knows the root of, every, of everything that he ultimately created. And the reason for all his decrees, which are hidden from his creatures, from us. The creatures only know, from the moment of God's decree onwards. In other words, from the open part of the base onwards. From the beginning Onwards, but not beforehand. Beyond that, above that, were never given over to humanity. To humanity. So that's, again, we see there's no argument here. The Ramchal and the Rambam agree. The Arbarbanel explains it, and that is what we are going to say. So what we're going to look at really is not the Tam Lixeroisav, that we don't know. As the Ramchal puts it, Lo Nimsuru Labriois, this was not given over to creatures like us. It was not given over to any creature. And according to the Rambam, not possible for us to understand it, A. Eh? And according to the Rambam, not possible for logically for us to have, uh, have any suggestions about it. However, from the creation of the factory, the world onwards, we can certainly look at it and make inferences. And certainly Hashem revealed to us in the Torah a tremendous amount. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to look around the factory uh, that much. We can, well, there's two ways of doing it, as the Rambam says. You can look into the Torah, which is the blueprint, the architectural plans for the factory, you can figure it out from there. Or you can look into the Bria, the creation, the factory itself, and you can figure it out from the production line what it is there to produce. Those are the two ways of doing it. So from the Torah itself is clearly easier because uh, the Torah itself tells us very explicitly. What does the Torah tell us about this? So Rabbi Lozato and others point out, the Torah tells us, this is based on uh, the uh, Pasuk, in Tehillim, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, Hashem's goal, purpose, so to speak, in creation of the world. What is the plastic, what's the plastic utensils, Lahavdil, that Hashem wants? He wants to give us Chesed, He wants to give us kindness. He wants to give us kindness. And of course, the ultimate gift, the ultimate goal and gift of kindness that Hashem can give us is clearly the greatest good that exists. What is the greatest good that exists? There is no greater good than HaKadosh Baruch Himself. God is the greatest good that exists. The greatest good accessible to us, therefore, is going to be a relationship with the Creator, a relationship with Hashem, a closeness to Hashem. If we could imagine everything that we love, desire, want, respect, honor, etc., all rolled into one, it would be a fraction of what it means to have a relationship with God. We experience that sometimes. We have someone that we, we greatly love or admire and we're close with them. Right? We have someone who has, you know, just to be close, just to have a relationship with such a person is a wonderful thing, a tremendous feeling of pleasure. Right? Certainly, the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is exactly that. As the Moshe Chaim Lozato points out in the beginning of Mesila Isharim, Path of the Just, that the human was created, Lihis to have this tremendous joy with the Creator through this relationship 
relationship um, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is the goal, that's the ultimate goal. Of course, Rabbi Yosef Karo asks at this point, he says, that's all very nice, but that doesn't explain why there's a world. You see, the world is a physical reality. Space, time, matter, taxes, etc. Right? The world is a physical reality, which apparently should not be necessary for Hashem to give us that relationship with Him. For us to have that relationship with God, we should not need the Grand Canyon. We should not need Route 95, Lahavdil, right? Uh, we should not need all of the all of the stuff in this world, uh, food, drink, etc. This is all totally unnecessary, ridiculous, right? As the way he asks it, he says, "Is that God surely could have found a better way or another way to have given us this good?" This doesn't explain why there's a physical world. Because to give us that great and ultimate good, you wouldn't have to need a physical world. God could have just created us as beings with the ability to have a relationship with God. He asked this question to an angel. Um, uh, because the Rabbi Yosef Kara had an angel with whom he'd learn once a week. And he would ask him questions on the weekly parsha, And the answers that the angel gave him, he recorded in a book called Magid Meshorim. Which is very interesting. I, I mean, the Gaon of Vilna maintains, very interesting, Reb Chaim Velozhin quotes it. The Gaon of Vilna told his students, he says, often he says, angels have come to me to offer me words of Torah. He says, my advice to you is not to listen to them. He says, the only Torah which is valuable is Torah which you've learnt yourself, which you've studied and struggled for. Any Torah which is given to you by an angel or by one of the patriarchs, I think it was Yaakov, who tried to tell him some words of Torah, he told his students not to, I mean, frankly, I, I think I'd have find it hard to resist, but I mean, uh, not that it's going to happen to me. But, uh, but that's what the God of Vilna says, it's in the Hagdomitus of the Sinusa, of Chaim Velozhin quotes it. Evidently, others felt differently, and there are numerous Svarim, Rigosov Karoz, Magid Meshorim, the Ramchal, Ramosh Chaim Lozata, also had a Magid, an angel, that spoke to him, uh, there's a set of Shailos and Shubas responsa Min HaShamayim of one of the authors of Toysfus who used to have responsa given to him by an angel in a dream, responses to halachic questions. Halachically speaking, it's very problematic whether you can rely upon that or not. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's another, another class. But, but basically, uh, the Magid Meisharim is Rabbi Yosef Kara's communication with the Magid, with the angel. And the angel answers him, uh, it's in Parshish Noach, by the way, the angel answers him the uh, following. He says that ultimately the purpose of this world is to create a gift where the gift is not Nahama de Kisufa, meaning it is not bread of shame. It is not bread of shame. Bread of shame, he defines as something you get without struggling for. As much as the Gaon of Vilna, ironically enough, the whole logic of the Gaon of Vilna not to listen to an angel is the logic which the angel told the Magid Meshorim in this book, right? Which is, right, that it's not worth it if you didn't struggle for it. Not worth it if you didn't struggle for it. I don't know exactly how that works, but that's what he says. And, and the idea of it not being worth it if you didn't struggle for it is more than just that you'll be embarrassed. It's not merely embarrassment. That's not what it is. Right? Because embarrassment could be avoided. And there are a lot of people who are not embarrassed by receiving something. Right? There, you know, there are a lot of people who just, oh, that's great. But what is Nabadi Kazuva is something more intrinsic. To creation than merely embarrassment. The idea of Nahamada Kisufa, bread of shame, is much, there's much more to it than that. The basic idea is the following. That if, um, and you know, just uh, as an idea, the uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, uh, his question, just to make it clearer, and I've mentioned, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, those who are in Hewlett or wherever it was I was speaking, I apologize. But uh, that basically, um, imagine someone gives you a present. And the present is, uh, say it's your birthday, and the present's a small, beautifully wrapped little box. So I open the box, I rip the wrapping paper, I always rip the wrapping paper because when I was a kid, my mother never let me rip the wrapping paper. I don't know if anyone had that experience. One of the traumas of my youth. Now I buy entire rolls and just rip them up around the house just for recreation. The house is covered with wrapping paper usually. So um, I, I rip it to shreds and open the box. And there's a key in the box. I say, oh, thank you for the key. This is very nice of you. Great, you know, birthday present. And he says, oh, you don't understand. He says, this is a key to a safety deposit box. He says, your present's in a safety deposit box, and the key is just the key to the, to the box. I say, 
wow, I mean, now it's very, now my thank you is a little more sincere, right? Uh, not totally, because I, I don't know what the contents of the box are yet. And um, then he says, I say, where is the bank? He says, in Grozny. I said, Grozny, isn't that in the middle of Chechnya? You know, he says, yes, it is. And I say, how do I get there? He says, you get, air Mos- uh, you know, you get um, a flight to Moscow. He says, then you get Air Chechnya discount. <laughs> you know, Air Chechnya? I said, Air Chechnya? You know, remember before the new terminals were built at Ben Gurion Airport? You'd get off the plane and actually go onto the tarmac and then get onto a bus. Okay? And you, I, I, I saw this myself. People would get off the plane and kiss the ground because it's Air Chechnya. There are certain airlines, it doesn't matter where the heck you land, you kiss the ground. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you get off Olympic Airlines in Newark, New Jersey, you will kiss the ground in Newark. <laughs> Air Chechnya is like that, you know what I mean? So, you get off, so I say, and when I get off Air Chechnya, where's the bank? He says, the bank is about 100 miles away. I said, okay, 100 miles, not so terrible, take me a couple of hours to drive it. And he says, well, a little complication is that the first 33 miles or so is a cordon of Russian Spetsnaz commandos. Those who are familiar with the Spetsnaz, they are the most vicious commandos in the world. Not the best, but they're the most vicious commandos in the world. And uh, they are also underpaid. Uh, so, uh, which doesn't bode well for tourists in the area. He says, I say, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. He says, if you get through the 33 and the third miles of Spetsnaz, he says, I say, then? He says, then there's another 33 miles, no Spetsnaz whatsoever. I said, that's great. Uh, well, what's there? He says, uh, Islamic fundamentalists. <laughs> Not only vicious, but also crazy. Right? So I say, well, this is getting better and better. And the, and the bank, he says, the bank is in the remaining 33 miles, which is not controlled either by the Russian Spetsnaz or by the Islamic fundamentalist. I say, who is it controlled by? He says, Russian mafia. Worse than both put together. Uh, so I finally make it, you know, if you finally make it to the bank, he says, careful because the key is booby-trapped. You turn it the wrong way, you're a goner. I say, you wouldn't happen to know which way, would you? <laughs> he says, well, it's clockwise or counter, but I have a digital watch, so I can't really help you here. <laughs> I mean, I would say to someone like that, next time, send me one of those email messages with Snoopy saying happy birthday. You know what I mean? Click on this link, right? And Snoopy's singing happy birthday, Mordecai, you know, that's... Right, so uh, I said, you know, I really don't need expensive gifts, you know, keys, wrapping paper. I don't really go, just, just a simple, maybe just a hug would be fine. Right, and, and really when you think about it, um, the whole idea of Nahamad Kisufa is, is, you know, is, is in order to answer this question. Right, Hashem wants us to get the stuff in the safety deposit box, which is relationship with Hashem, and He makes us go through... Air Chechnya and the Russian Spetsnaz and the Islamic fundamentalists and the Russian Mafia and so on. And please, anyone who's a member of the Russian Mafia, this is only a joke, really. <laughs> Just a joke. I could use anyone else. Sopranos, whatever, it doesn't. So, um, so, what is the idea here? So, Ramosha Chaim Lozato tells us that there's a deeper idea behind Nama de It's not merely that you're ashamed. It's not merely that you're embarrassed. He says much more fundamental than that. Because in order to have the relationship with God, in order to have the closeness with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is possible, but the degree of joy, the degree of happiness and of pleasure and of love in a relationship is directly proportional, directly proportional to the degree to which you are compatible with the other party in the relationship. It was obviously, um, it could be fun hanging around with someone who's an enjoyable person, but if you don't have that much in common, it's not going to be a deep, wonderful pleasure and joy. And the less you have in common, not only will it be not joyful, but if you have nothing in common, it will be extremely unpleasant. Very unpleasant. An uh, example would be, um, uh, this is the other example I used last week, but um, uh, the other example would be that... Um, Coca-Cola had a competition a long time ago uh, in which you open up the, uh, the Coke bottle and inside it says either a winning code, you've won, or it says try again. Okay. I had a guy at my house, said try again, he closed the bottle, he opened it again, closed it, he opened it. So like, dude, this is not working, man. This is like, yeah. So, anyway, um, 
The, uh, the winning code at the time uh, involved uh, the first prize was a one-week touring with the uh, Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys, for those who are not familiar with them, are ostensibly a group of people producing what they claim is music. Um, in order to really appreciate it, you must wear clothing eight times too big. Um, uh, generally, uh, extensive facial piercing is also necessary, preferably through the frontal lobes of the brain, um, and to just get the full benefit of their music. Um, so, I believe they started hip-hop, which is the beginning of the end of Western society. Um, <laughs> Western culture, whatever he wrote. It was Mahatma Gandhi. Someone asked him what he thought of Western culture, Western civilization. He says, I think it would be a wonderful idea. So, um, anyway, the, uh, this was first prize. You get to spend one week with the Beastie Boys. You could actually tour with them, spend time backstage, serve them drinks and other pharmaceuticals, etc. So, I, this, was the, this was first prize. So, um, now, imagine at the time, and I, you know, this was actually happening at the time, the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra was playing in New Jersey. The Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Herbert von Karajan, great German conductor, Beethoven's, I mean the great, greatest exponent of Beethoven, conductor of Beethoven, the Berlin Philharmonic, and, and Herbert von Karajan. I mean, I have, a, I have a six CD set in my car of the Berlin Philharmonic, Herbert von Karajan, Beethoven. I'm coming back late from a sheer, uh, late at night trying to stay awake, so there's nothing better than Beethoven blasting out the window. I may have the windows open, I have the sound system on full. I actually get guys with bandanas, right, in their souped up Toyotas, right, playing around asking me to turn down the Beethoven so they can hear Snoop Dogg, you know what I mean? It's like, right, hey, like, dude, can you turn it down, man? Oh, you're welcome. Right, so, um, anyway, so at the time, Herbert von Karajan conducting the Berlin Philharmonic. He opens, he goes, you know, had a long concert, he goes backstage, feeds into Deutschmarks or Euros into the Coke machine, gets his little Coke bottle, he opens it up, he's won. He looks at me and says, Aha! So, I have won the competition. He rips off the label to see what the, what the winning you know, prize is. He sees one week with the Beastie Boys. I mean, is it going to be first prize for Herbert? Or a condemnation to the depths of Gehinnom? Okay, now what's the problem here? The problem is that yes, they live on the same planet, but they live in different worlds. I mean, the, the, there is no, I mean, the closeness is not going to happen. There is not going to be a pleasure and a joy and an intimacy in a relationship, right, in which Herbert von Karajan, right, is backstage with the Beastie Boys. You know, I mean, you can, you just like imagine type of thing, you know, uh, you know uh, like you get to spend a week with Jim Carrey and you're a professor of philosophy at Oxford. Not gonna, with Monty Python it would work, not with American comedians, however. Right? So, um, but that's, it would be unbelievable. It would be having, let's set up an ultimate jam session. Yo-Yo Ma and Snoop Dogg. Right? So, this is not going to work. The answer, so this is really the deeper idea, believe it or not, behind Nahama de Kisufa. This is what the Ramchal says, although I'm taking some liberty with the original Hebrew. Right? So, which is that in order to have the closeness of the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu requires that the good that you do, that your being like Hashem, your compatibility with Hashem, should come from your own choice and from your own work. Because otherwise, you will be totally incompatible. Why do I say that? Because since HaKadosh Baruch Hu is totally self-contained, there's nothing outside of Hashem. Nothing exists outside of Hashem. Ain od milvado. There's nothing but God. Emet Malkeinu, our God is true, our King is true. Ephes Zulato, there's nothing but Him. That means that any good that God does, anything that God does, where does it come from? Obviously it comes totally from within. It does not come from any outside source, which is how we started, right? That's what Kadmut means, according to Maimonides, that nothing he does, everything he does, comes from a pure Ratzon, his will. He willed that it should be so, as Rav Chaim Soloveitchik put it. Which means anything that we do, and it says we are created, but Selim Elohim in the image of God. What does that mean? What that means is just as Hashem has pure, free Ratzon, pure, free will, that is to say, he's not influenced by anything outside of himself. He makes a decision which is a pure 
desire of his own free will to do so, so also our good, whatever we do, where does it have to come from to be compatible and similar to Hashem? It must come from, also from within. It is interesting, just as an aside, I heard from my Rebbe, Rabbi Shapiro, an interesting point. He said this at the Vort of Rabbi Yeshua Kash from Chicago. I remember this. This is a long time ago. Rabbi Yeshua Kash's oldest son is, I think, 20. So, okay. But he said at the Vort the following. Yeah, he asked a simple question. It said, you know, we know, uh, if you would ask most people, what is a woman's major role in Judaism? Traditional Jewish perspective. No PC. Right? Traditional Jewish perspective. What would be a woman's ma- what, a major role of a woman? I think most of us would say, and would be correct, in saying having a child, raising the child, producing a decent human being, which is not a small thing. Not a small thing. But you would, most people would say that. Does that sound correct to most people? Right? Major role. Not the only role, but certainly the major role. So, if so, he asks, it's a little bit strange, if that's a woman's major role, why is she not commanded? The mitzvah of Piri of Arivia, the mitzvah of procreation, of having children, for a woman is voluntary, for a man is obligatory. I know, I may be creating some problems, I don't know if you women knew that, but it is actually a voluntary obligation, it's not an obligation for a woman. A man is obligated to have children. So, a woman is voluntary. So he asked the question, if this is a major role, if not the major role of a woman is having a child, how could it be that she's not commanded? How could it be that the law doesn't require her to do so? So Ramosha said, in a question like that, the answer is the question. Or the question is the answer, meaning... It has to be that way. Since it is a major role of the woman, it cannot be that she is forced to do it. Because you see, if this is how she primarily is imitating God, God's a creator, God gives, God bestows kindness, bestows life, bestows existence, and continues to sustain and to nurture and to give, give that existence growth, right? Is he compelled to do that? Anyone force God to do that? Does uh, he's in contravention of code number 101.3, right, uh, if he didn't do that? No! Which means for someone to imitate God as a creator, which is what a woman is doing, and as a nurturer, and as a giver, and a sustainer, if she is compelled to do that, is that similar to God? Dissimilar. Totally dissimilar. The only way it can be similar to God is if it comes from a desire to create, to give, to sustain. And that is exactly why it's not obligatory. This is not the man's primary role. That's not how he fulfills his primary role. So for him it's obligatory. Not a problem. But for a woman, since this is one of her primary roles, it specifically cannot be obligatory. It's symbolic of the whole idea of the human being. The whole idea of the human being is that what we do has to come from inner ratzon. That ideally, my rotson should be kiritsoinoi, like his rotson, like Hashem's desire. As Hashem's desire is pure, derech hatov, as the Ramchal puts it, the way of the good, lahetiv, is to give. So also we should be just, it's, it should be of our desire. And therefore, if we were created perfect, created good, created already similar to God, we would be ultimately dissimilar to God. There could be no greater dissimilarity. Because if I am created perfect, then I'm not godlike. Because that means something outside of me made me so. Is this clear? Right. Something outside of me forced me to be so. I am as good as a rock. A rock is a rock because Hashem made it into a rock. And if Hashem made you a tzaddik, you would not be a tzaddik, you'd be a rock. You would be basically just, well, Hashem made you that way, it's nothing, no big deal. Which is the whole idea uh, why, why in a deterministic world, if you look at the world from the point of view of determinism, there's no possibility of good and evil at all. Where's, where's good and evil? You were made that way. Right, your genetics, it was inevitable that the genetics of Muhammad Atta would compel him, his genetics and his upbringing compelled him to do an act of mass murder. Can you condemn him for that? Of course not. Would you condemn a whale for eating millions of plankton every day? The whales are the biggest mass murderers in the world. Do you know that whales consume millions of shrimp and zooplankton? 
which are, which are living animals. I mean, does anyone condemn the whale? Do you see signs out there? I mean, you can imagine a plankton demonstration kill the whales, right? I mean, if shrimp were out there protesting, they'd be out to kill the whales, right? Which is fair enough from their perspective, right? But obviously we don't condemn them because the whale has no free will. The whale is that way because God made it that way. There's nothing evil about a whale eating plankton. And there'd be nothing good about my giving charity if I was forced to do so. There'd be nothing godlike about my uh, being gracious and kind to someone uh, if I was made to be that way, if I was pre-programmed that way. And so consequently, I'd be utterly dissimilar. That's the deeper meaning of Nahama de Kisufa, bread of shame. Bread of shame doesn't much just mean that I'm embarrassed to get the gift and therefore it's not as good as a gift. Right? If, if, that would be a minor problem. But the major problem is I am incapable of receiving the gift. Because if I am not compatible, similar, and close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then I'm, I'm just not able to have that gift of, 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 that gift of Hashem's love. I'm not capable of having that gift and the beauty of the relationship, as the Ramchal puts it, to enjoy Hashem with a joy which is greater than anything we've ever experienced in the physical world. That requires compatibility, that requires similarity. Compatibility and similarity requires that that I be made like His will, which means I be made but in the image of God, i.e. as He has ratzon, which is uncompelled, my ratzon to do that which is good has to come from within, has to be not compelled, has to be free will. In order to do that, requires the creation of a world in which it's possible to go either way. He creates a world in which it's possible to go either way. He creates a world in which there's concealment. He creates a world in which I cannot see reality. What I think is real, is not real. You know, I look at the world and I say, this is reality. Right? But we, have, we know that it's not the ultimate reality. This far, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I just saw a calculation recently. It was made by Albert Einstein. Following calculation, he says, if you remove all the space, as you know, our bodies are mostly empty space. No offence to anyone, right? Um, actually, if you're at the Viennese table tonight, we'll see that actually some people have a lot more empty space than others, right? Um, but our bodies are mostly empty space. The space between the particles in the, mo- in the molecules is a ratio of something like 22 trillion to 1 of empty space to matter. Do you know that? Empty space to matter in our body. So it's unbelievable, right? So, uh, what would be the if you would take Einstein made the calculation? If you would take the matter in every single human being on the face of the planet, right, and you would take out all the empty space and just have the matter, what size object would you have? Compress all the matter into one object of every single human being on the face of the planet. He says you would have an object the size of a baseball. Size of a baseball, of course it will be a considerably greater mass uh, than a baseball, but uh, you'd have a size of a baseball, all of humans. I, I, I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing, right? But what it tells me is, just on a very simple level, that uh, I have no clue. I mean, when I, what I see as reality is just not, you know, it's a joke. Right? What I think is real is just not. Right? The ultimate reality is a Kodesh Baruch Hu, But he created a world, Olam, of He'elem, of concealment, the same root, in order to maintain and give us the possibility of free will, of struggling through the Spetsnaz, Er Chechnya, the, uh, the um, Islamic fundamentalists and the Russian mafia and so on and so forth. Ultimately, Latov Lanu Kolayimim, for ultimately for our good, for all of eternity. Because it is only through that that we actually achieve that tremendous, that tremendous goodness. So really, the, 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 if you'd ask, why is there a world, meaning, why does a physical world exist? Our answer would have to be to create an environment for free will to function. That's really, that's the goal. Right? Because that's why there is a world. To create the environment for a free will to function. To create, actually, interesting to note, this is type of like uh, an exile. You look in the Torah, the very beginning of the Torah, right? We are told in the Medrash that exile was already there at the beginning of creation, right? It says that, um, that, uh, the earth was soyu, desolate, vavohu, and void, or stunning, exceedingly, stunningly desolate, right? Darkness over the face of the depths. 
So the Medrash Rabbah right there says that that refers to, Toyo refers to the Greek, ex, uh, the Babylonian exile, Vavo refers to the, Babylon, uh, the Persian exile, right? Choshech, darkness, refers to the Greek exile, and uh, uh, over the depths refers to the Roman exile. It's a little strange to have exile at the beginning of the Torah. I mean, there's no people yet. There's not even, I mean, no one did anything wrong yet. There was no one around to do anything wrong. My son was at this summer camp two years ago. Uh, it, it was a little bit of, he thought it was going to be a, a camp where they'll be learning half day, and they'll also have sports. In fact, the first speech at the camp, the mashkiach of the camp gets up, and he says, camp, I won't give you the name, but those who want to know afterwards, I'll, he says, camp so-and-so is not a mockum for fun. It's not a place for fun. He says, oh, no, it's like the first day, the first speech they heard in the entire camp. And he's like, he's got six weeks ahead of him. This is not the mockum for fun. It's not a place for fun. Now, that's, that's pretty bad. But imagine if, even before then, he said the following are the punishments for infractions against the camp rules. I mean, you, you just arrived at the camp, right? There's nothing, before the speech about it's not a place for fun, right? Before then, there's a speech about the rules, right? And the punishments and so on and so forth. God creates the world. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Next pasuk, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Right, right, and, and this is a little. I mean, it's a little. It's a little rough. It's a little rough. I wouldn't have done it that way. Right. So um, the answer is very simple. The answer is that indeed, in a sense, this world is an exile. That's what this world is. It's for the soul, it is a state of exile. It's a state of exile which is for the ultimate good of the soul. Because it's a state of exile which the soul will raise itself out of this and will eventually, will eventually come to a much higher level. Much higher level. Right? It's just that the bitterness of that exile in the world is that which creates the impetus for the soul to go further. So really, the, the, why there are world is, is, is this environment of free will. It's interesting, when we, any, when we celebrate things, we always have wine. Right, those people probably still recovering from the seder, right? Uh, the wine, the matzah, etc., etc. Um, and uh, so, so, but why do we have wine? Why is that so significant? So it's interesting that Samson Raphael Hirsch says that wine indicates the end of a process of fermentation that produced from something simple, something complex and superior. You see, it starts out as grape juice. Grape juice is not very impressive. Grape juice actually uh, doesn't taste that great, right? It doesn't have the bouquet, the aroma, uh, it doesn't have the bouquet, does not have the taste, doesn't have the depth or the dimension, the alcohol that wine has. You know what I mean? Wine is a vastly superior product. What you have from wine is a whole range of possibilities in, in wine, which is incredible. And grape juice, grape juice, it's like another fruit juice. You give it to a kid. Right, the kid has some taste of grape juice. But you see, but for grape juice to turn into wine, it has to go through a process of fermentation. I think I'm talking about this afternoon, a little fermentation. I'm talking about Scotch whiskey this afternoon. Right, uh, so, but it has to go through, like everything else, a process of fermentation. During the time that the wine is fermenting, it is not potable. You cannot drink it. It's bitter, it's horrible, it's lousy, it's bad. Right? So it's after the fermentation process is over, when it stabilizes, then and only then can you drink it. So Rosanthropho says, what is wine? Wine is a symbolic of that idea. It is, a, it is symbolic of the end of life. We, born, we are born as grape juice. And life is a process of fermentation. There is struggle. And, but at each level of that struggle, there are different levels. You turn into a Beaujolais, if it's an early fermentation, right? Uh, a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Merlot, right? And so on and so forth, right? And uh, there are some people out there who are champagne, some people, whatever, you know, but there's all different levels, right? But the, indeed, that is, he says, so when it comes to Shabbos, it comes to a Yontif, when we are tasting a little bit of the future world, we are tasting the geula. 
when we sit at the Seder, we're tasting the redemption. When we sit at the Shabbos, we're tasting Me'ain Olam Haba. When we're there on Shavuos, we're tasting Hashem. That Hashem will reveal to us a second time in the eyes of everyone and say, you are my people. Har Sinai, again, we're tasting a little bit of that. We always celebrate. We have Kiddush and we have Kiddush on wine. And the idea behind that is we're tasting a little bit of that future. It's interesting that the Talmud describes, actually the Posik uh, says that in the future what we'll have is Yayin Amashumar Be'anavav, which is wine in the grapes. Times of the Mashiach, wine in the grape. What does that mean? You'll squeeze grapes and what you'll get out is a great Merlot. Right? What you'll get at is a converts demeanor. What you'll get at is the mature wine. There won't be the process of fermentation and struggle, right? Because the Yetzirah will be abolished from the world. The evil inclination will be abolished from the world. And so the taste of wine is the taste of the end of a long process, is the taste of the end of the fermentation. It's interesting. The Zahar points out that yes, on Pesach we eat matzah, but on Shavuos, Hashem Dafka specifically asks us to bring an offering made of chametz, made of leavened bread. So, the, because the Zohar puts it that the, the exodus is still the process, right? It's not the, it's not the superior product is bread. Bread is much better than matzah, right? I mean, you know, bread is, is, is the superior product. But the bread we get on Shavuos at the end of the process, the end of the redemption, the end of that is when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? The end of the Jewish people coming to that level where we've gone through that struggle of Egypt and we now come to a level of relationship with God, which is, so to speak, the wedding. The wedding. Uh, it's interesting because the, um, I heard also Ramosh Shapiro said that, the, that Pesach is the source of the engagement. That was the engagement of God and the Jewish people. The wedding, very famous, is Mount Sinai. We stood under the chuppah at Mount Sinai. God gave us the ring, the tablets. That was the wedding between God and the Jewish people. Where was the engagement? The Talmud says that Rav was very strict. He says he would, he would beat people. He would have them uh, punished if they got married without a prior agreement, a prior shidduch to get married, a prior agreement to get married. And where was the prior agreement between God and the Jewish people? We came out of Egypt on Pesach, and what did God tell us? He said, you will meet me on that mountain. God told Moses to tell the Jews, you'll meet me on this mountain. Right. So the end of that, we chametz, so to speak, symbolizing again the end of that redemption, because the same happens with bread. Right, bread goes through to become the superior product called bread or bagel or whatever, right, has to go through again a process of a form of fermentation that we call chimutz, leavening, right, rising. What is that process? You know, it's, it's producing like carbon dioxide gas and inflating the stuff. It doesn't take, I mean, during the time of processing, it's not good, right? It's at the end of it, when you bake it, then it's good. That's shvus. So, in a sense, that is symbolic also. Bread and wine, both symbolic of what the human uh, job is about. It's interesting, this is also in the very beginning of the Torah. Hashem tells Adam, after Adam and Chava do the sin, so Hashem says, He says, You will eat from the grass of the field, the herbs of the field. Until that time, they only ate from the fruit of the trees. And animals ate from herbs and grasses and vegetables. After the sin, God tells Adam and Chava, you will eat from the grains of the field. People familiar with this, right? The grains of the field. And what happens is, the, the Gemarian Psachim says, Zalgu enav Adam started to cry. He started to cry when Hashem said this. He said, Will I and my donkey eat from the same trough? He said, what, you're condemning us to be like the animals. The donkey sits there at the trough, right, and eats and eats, and basically, and that's what the human being will be. And God tells him, no, you will have to work for it. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. And then Adam is happy. So the Shalom says, it's a little strange, isn't it? Right, you tell someone, you are going to eat this. And I was like, oh, that's terrible, that's the same food as the animals. I said, oh, no, no, don't worry. You'll have to work hard for it, the animal will just get it like that. And Adam is great, oh, awesome. Sounds great. But according to the Shalah, it, of course, according to what we're saying, this is exactly the point. God tells him, your food will be the grass, the herbs, the grains, etc. And Adam cries. 
Because he now knows he's being demoted. He's no longer the, like God. He's now like an animal. He's no longer, right? So God tells him, no. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow, meaning you will work and process it. You'll process it. You'll have to work on it. And of course, isn't that why bread is the quintessential human food, prototypical human food? Because bread is goes through so many processes until it becomes bread. That's what made Adam happy. Adam was happy because he was being told it won't be Nahama de Kisufa, it won't be bread of shame. It will not be bread of shame. It will be bread that you work for. It will be bread that comes from your own ingenuity, from your own intelligence, comes from within. According to the Chidot, the Chidot says, when we dip, at the beginning of the Seder, we dip the Karpas into salt water. He says that was to remind us of this idea. It was to give us an insight into why we went into Egypt in the first place. Karpas, he says, is a vegetable. Before we've even had bread, the human food, we have a vegetable, animal food. Whether it's parsley or potato or turnip or whatever, we have the vegetable. And what do we dip it into? Salty liquid, sweat of our brow. Chidos says, we are at the beginning of the Seder saying, yes, we sinned, that's the vegetable. Right? We sinned, we did the wrong thing. Right? Uh, but, and we were now demoted, but we dip it into salt water. What we're saying is, but we work through the sweat of our brow to get it. Right? And it's meant to be a hint to us to the idea of what, it's, what Mitzrayim is. We thank Hashem for taking us out of Egypt. We also have to thank Hashem for putting us in Egypt. Because that was the place where we developed and grew and became the Jewish people. We became the Jewish nation. And that's what the Zayas Apecha Toicha Lechem is. After we recognize that, then we can get to the rest of the, we can get to the rest of the Seder. But it says, that Zayas Apecha Toicha Lechem, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, the Shalosh says, and the Chidosh says, and the Ramchal say, they all say that's the exact idea of Nahamad Kisufa, the bread avoiding, so to speak, the bread of shame. And that is why free will is so central to all of creation, because that ultimately is the is, so to speak, the production of human beings who do that which is good through Bechira, through free will, that's, the fact, that's what the factory is producing. That factory that we discussed at the beginning, the Abarbanel's factory, that's the plastic container. It's human beings who are godlike, who are similar to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and producing through our own free will. The Rabbeinu Yoyna, I'll end with this, Rabbeinu Yoyna in Shari Tshuva says, he says, aside from every single mitzvah also being a mitzvah and a commandment, he says there's also a mitzvah to do every mitzvah with Bechira. You're fulfilling a separate idea. He says you're fulfilling the ultimate goal of the human being that when you do something, you do it and you say, I'm deciding to do this. I'm choosing to do this. It's an expression of my ratzon, an expression of my will. Okay, that's the basic idea. Thank you very much. Now we'll take uh, questions. Yeah. Yeah. 